All right. Welcome back to the podcast. We have Joe Tootle, who is a civil engineering graduate from the University of California at Berkeley and is a registered civil and geotechnical engineer in California. He has led geotechnical consulting on hundreds of large projects and have collectively included more than 200 million cubic yards of earthwork and hundreds of mil miles of public infrastructure roadway improvements. Joe's expertise spans far and wide from geotechnical engineering to post-fire restoration. We also have Chase, who is a registered and civil engineer in California with degrees in civil engineering from Cal Poly Slow and the University of California at Berkeley. Chase focuses on hydrology and hydraulic analyses, groundwater modeling, coastal engineering, stormwater and erosion control management, and post-fire mitigation. His most recent post-fire mitigation project involved the Madera County to evaluate burned areas and implementing soil stabilization measures following the Creek Fire. Welcome, Joe and Chase. We're excited to have you here. We're excited as well. Yeah, thanks for having us. We also have Jeff Adams on the show today. Greetings. And we're, we're excited to get, get going here. All right, so you're talking about fire, obviously a wildfire takes place and, and, you know, it doesn't take too much imagination to you know, determine and kind of visualize what happens. But if it were in a wildland area, fire breaks out, uh, you know, there's obviously pretty significant destruction, you know, to vegetation, you know, uh, habitat areas are destroyed, uh, not to mention the encroachment of the fire into habitated areas. Uh, but then the fire gets put out and... I'm just wondering if you could walk us through, okay, once the fire is finally out, literally the embers have been extinguished, what are some of the, uh, what are some of the post-fire impacts that a community has to deal with upon the, uh, the fire being put out? So there, there are several and, um, you know, it's not always apparent or, um, or obvious that people should worry about it because wildfires are, as you just said, Jeff, very devastating, right? Uh, lots of uh, open space can get destroyed and then people's homes and uh, perils that could face these communities are erosion of the soils afterwards, uh, creation of mudslides, debris flows, those types of hazards are relatively common. And, um, you know, the, the, the reasons for that are, uh, you know, aren't hard to, to visualize once you start thinking about them. But you know, wildfires, they primarily destroy the vegetation, like you mentioned, and um, not just the trees and the brush and the grass, but the root systems that go along with the, the vegetation. And, you know, that really holds the topsoil together, uh, keeps things from eroding in the pre-wildfire state. And when all that vegetation is gone, now the soil is very susceptible to erosion. So you can get, um, you know, soil you know, going down the, the hill slope, sometimes very large mass in uh, very destructive ways, and um, and then clogging up the streams that they they dump into. And um, and the, the physical destruction of the vegetation is one thing, but there's even, a, you know, if the conditions are right, the chemical makeup of the soil can be altered a little bit, helping to, to even increase those dangers. And like Joe was saying, um, with the, the geologic hazards, the debris flows, the mudslides, oftentimes the fires are burning in, in the summer and, and even into the late fall. And that kind of sets up right before the rainy season um, when you start getting these intense storms coming through, which uh, can facil facilitate a lot of that erosion. Um, in addition, another more environmental concern is um, the large volumes of sediment and ash and uh, contaminants that can be flowing into drinking water reservoirs, um, environmental water bodies, 
and even leaching into the groundwater. Um, so there's a lot of research being done right now on how um, some of the fire retardant chemicals that are used to, to help put out the fire, right, which are really important, but then how those break down into the soil and into the water and potential public health effects on that end. So, so like while the wildfire can burn, um, often burns for a number of months, the impacts following the fire can last for, for many years. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, too, because when they do encroach inhabited areas, uh, you'll get structural de uh, destruction. You know, the garage burns down, the barn burns down, and then the chemicals in there, the, the furnishings, etc. Yeah, that, that leaves. It's one of those things that everyone always forgets about. That, that's going to leave, uh, in many cases, some toxic byproducts, too, that become part of the mix. And uh, it's it just it's interesting, too, because, you know, in some ways, We've, we've always been conditioned to hear that, well, wildfires can be good. You know, the forest sometimes needs to burn. But you're absolutely right. Um, the You know, aside from the destruction of that, of, of natural beauty aesthetics and, and the built environment, uh, while you're maybe replenishing the flora and the fauna in some ways, you're also creating this this absolutely doom and gloom ability for things to run off and start affecting the waters, be it groundwater, be it surface water. So it's it's kind of the can't win scenario and, and something you said too chase is that yeah i mean fire season is always precipitate is always followed by rainy season you know you get the fire fires that are out of control we're always counting down until when november or december comes when the, when the rains begin so it's oftentimes those storm events that help extinguish right. fires right so they can be literally back to back right there's there can be not much time between the fire being extinguished and the rains falling because those events often uh, one causes the other. And with with them being so close together, you know, what what is the typical post fire response process? And can we quickly implement it? Is it possible to, you know, stop the you know, or rather prevent erosion, prevent the issues that come from the debris from fires? Yeah. So like we've been hitting on, there's a pretty short window of time when when you can actually um, get out to the site and evaluate the burned area right. and then kind of produce um, some type of report or information to to your counties and cities and agencies to help mitigate any of the effects following that fire. So right now, the kind of typical process um, in the U.S. is if there's a fire burning on federal lands, um, the U.S. Forest Service will often deploy a team. Uh, they call it their Burned Area Emergency Response Team. Their acronym is BEAR. And so they'll head out with uh, the USGS and Bureau of Land Management and kind of assess the burned area, looking at kind of where the fire burned the hottest, what soils may be most susceptible um, to erosion. And then they'll kind of produce a report that, that talks about where the uh, most severely burned areas were and what type of infrastructure and um, values at risk is kind of the term they use that, that, that may be impacted. Um, for any fires burned on private or state lands, um, CAL FIRE, along with the California Geological Survey, um, will head out and, and perform that assessment as well and, and provide a similar report. So I guess the thing, the kind of tricky part is uh, we may have 20 to 30 to uh, hundreds of even little fires burning at the same time in California. Uh, or even across the, the U.S. And so these agencies can be stretched pretty thin. So um, oftentimes private consultants um, will come in and also help try to evaluate and provide these reports and, and help help the communities that are affected by these wildfires really triage 
what uh, mitigation measures should be put in place because there may be a hundred areas where you could do some mitigation, but if you only have a week before your rainstorms coming in, you kind of need to figure out, hey, what are my top 10 um, structures or roadways or culverts that we can try to protect uh, prior to the storm hitting? And, and I think, at least in our experience, that's where NGO has been able to bring, you know, a lot of value to those local agencies because, you know, once those reports are produced, um, oftentimes the implementation of whatever mitigation measures are needed are left to the local cities or counties to actually um, get in place. And, you know, their, their staff sometimes are also, you know, there's been devastating fires in the area, so they can be stretched relatively thin as well. And it's not something they deal with every day. And so being able to quickly um, assess where the, the most severe hazards are, um, how best to address them and do that in a short period of time. And as, as Jay said, really triage the, the damage and, and focus your, your time and your, your resources, your financial resources on trying to mitigate the biggest hazards most effectively. And sometimes you don't have time or money to address everything, but you want to try and get the best value for the effort that you have. And, and, and it's those, it's oftentimes that, task that NGO is very well equipped to help with because uh, sometimes these other agencies just get overwhelmed and don't have the in-house expertise. And obviously there's a number of agencies that are involved and Joe, you hit on something as well that local agencies, you're right. A lot of times these are, are proximate to where those people live. They, they may have lost their homes and, and they've got to uh, get involved with the effort for recovery. Who kind of leads it? Is this, is this something that's led at the federal level? Is this a FEMA thing? Is it the state that kind of you know, becomes the ultimate coordinator of the various agencies or, or resources. Um, so yeah, the, the U.S. Forest Service kind of leads anything burned on federal lands. They kind of like to take their team and run with it. Um, uh, on any state lands and private lands, that's where Cal Fire and CGS kind of take the lead. Um, but it's oftentimes they're providing like very immediate um, recommendations and um emergency kind of measures that the the communities and cities and counties can implement but oftentimes long term if you're looking at um, trying to mitigate fires over the next 10 20 years and, and the effects of fires it's kind of just left to the city and county agencies to deal with that and and like joe was saying they may not have the post-fire expertise and so they're often looking to, to outside consultants like us to help them through that uh, planning process. So we'll, we'll work with uh, community members and emergency responders to help them understand what the risk is and, and um, relay that information to the communities that they're protecting. So as an example, um, you know, the, the U.S. Uh, Forest Service isn't going to tell a county Hey, this particular road's a critical piece of transportation infrastructure for evacuation or um, uh, logistics. And there's two culverts that, if they got clogged, would take the road out. Right? Their 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 reports aren't that granular. Um, and but you know, an issue like that could be critical to the county emergency response to the the damage that's occurred, or just being able to get supplies in and out. You know, for their community and. And it's, it's that sort of boots on the ground implementation of what do you do where and you know what what pieces of infrastructure and other assets are at the highest risk 
that you know the, the federal and state agencies don't get that granular. Um, but it, it's really those types of things that are going to impact you know people's abilities to to get to their house, you know, if their house didn't burn, or you know, just be able to function in the community after the fire. And Jeff, just to go back to FEMA and, and the role they play, they're not necessarily boots on the ground like some of these other agencies, but they play a big role in terms of funding. I know at least the counties that we've worked with often are applying for FEMA funding after the fire, which provides budget to, to put in these post-fire mitigation measures. And what are some of the physical strategies that one applies post-fire? Uh, we talked about erosion. We talked about obviously water protection of water uh, from stormwater runoff. What are what are some of the things that get applied? Yeah, there there are many. Um, you know, both uh, physical and I guess I'll call them you know sort of softer things. Uh, but the the physical uh, mitigation measures kind of fall into two categories in my mind. There are permanent things that are oftentimes or sometimes um, implemented and then temporary. So some of the permanent um, mitigation measures could include building a permanent uh, debris catchment area. You know, if a, if a debris flow hazard was created and it's very high and the and if one did develop would be very damaging, you know, you can build a permanent basin um, to hold that back. There are products like, you know, steel uh, sort of debris um, netting and rockfall netting that can be put on slopes um, to, and, and left there, you know, permanently that can be used. You know, those, those are oftentimes deployed in very high hazard areas with, um, with in, and in areas where the, the, the impact would be devastating if there was a problem. But more often there's temporary measures like erosion control, fencing, and um, silk containment devices that can be um, in, installed. Hydro seeding, uh, you know, is is oftentimes a tool, and even temporary irrigation to help germinate um, the seeds if if you think that is going to be necessary between the end of the, the fire burning and natural precipitation to to bring things about. And then there are temporary products that are um, on the market that you can build temporary catchment areas. Um, and other, you know, temporary deflection berms and those sorts of things that once the vegetation is reestablished and some of those post-fire hazards are um, reduced over time, they can be taken out. The old uh, um, nature will heal itself, but sometimes it needs a, a helping hand. Exactly. Like you said, even a, a healthy fire that helps clean things up, there is, you know, potential, you know, short time period where, you know, there is these um, heightened erosion risks. And then there are, you know, a lot of action items um, that, you know, can be implemented that aren't hard infrastructure. I don't know if you wanted to talk about a few of those, Chase. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think one of the tricky things about these wildfires is they're burning over such large areas, oftentimes hundreds of thousands of acres. So how do you, how do you stabilize that much burned area? So like Joe was saying, one method that we can use like hydro seeding, um, which will often use like helicopters and planes to fly over an area to help reforestation. So there's a big biological component of, of basically getting those root structures back on your on your slope, and then kind of continuing on with some more softer measures. A, a huge thing is just community outreach and education because a lot of the people living in these uh, burned areas don't don't realize the risk 
uh, following the fire. So that can be working with emergency responders to kind of help develop evacuation zones. Um, we'll look at, um, do a lot of weather monitoring. So there are certain rainfall trigger thresholds where say we have this storm coming up and if it's supposed to hit an intensity of say an inch per hour, that, that could be a trigger for a debris flow. So we're, we're constantly monitoring the weather, talking with these uh, officials. And if we're actively monitoring um, rain gauges in the watershed as it's falling, and if we start hitting these thresholds, that's when the emergency responders can, can, can make the call about um, whether people should evacuate or not. And there's kind of a big social science component to this as well, because you don't want to be crying wolf every time there's a rainstorm coming in, because if people are told they need to evacuate, they need to evacuate, and they're evacuating five times in a row, and, and nothing ended up happening. On the sixth time, when, when there's actually a big storm coming through, um, they may think they're fine, and that's that's when the devastation hits. So it's trying playing a fine line of really narrowing down um, kind of our, our weather forecasting and the weather forecasting is getting better and better each year. Um, so again, yeah, just more of that social science component and other, other items you can put up road signs, just warning people that, Hey, this is a debris flow hazard area as they're driving through these roads. Um, you can preliminarily stage equipment on the roads, So, um, they can be quickly cleared following storms. So there, there's a lot of ways that, um, you can get a community prepared without actually installing hard engineered solutions. I, I never thought of that approach. The uh, the storm chaser that cried wolf. That, that certainly is a component because you want to keep people ready. You want to keep people aware and engaged. But at the same time, they'll start to tune out the message if they've heard it, especially erroneously, too many times. Does NGO have ways to help communities to prepare so you talk about how you know they can put up signs have we implemented anything that can support the the process not just the reporting but also helping communities be prepared for um, the post-fire issues that come with a large fire that can hit your community um yeah so we actually helped out a community back in um the fall of 2020, when the Creek Fire uh, burned through Sierra National Forest and Madera and Fresno counties. Yep. So following that fire, like you said, we, we um, visited the site, produced a report. But then along with that, we actually went out and took action and, and helped install mitigation measures um, with help from the sheriff's department and um, some retired police officers. So we kind of triaged what roads and, and watersheds were most at risk, and then we implemented um, kind of an erosion control fencing in front of a lot of, a lot of vulnerable culverts uh, to prevent those from clogging. So, um, yeah, like you said, along with just producing a report saying, hey, here's a bunch of stuff that you can do, we'll actually go out and help make sure that's implemented, whether that's yeah installing the mitigation measures or even going out and installing rain gauges in these remote areas. Um, we'll develop GIS portals to kind of communicate spatially where these risks are located and kind of what measures we can implement. And, and those are pretty useful because, like I was saying, these watersheds are huge and they're often in areas without cell service. They're very remote. So with GIS, you can you can use it offline. Um, you can locate yourself using GPS. And, and in the field, you can really kind of pin down 
where these areas are that we may mention in a report, but when you're in the field, um, you can actually find it. And so, in that particular instance, you know, there were, I think, at least two community um, kind of workshops that the sheriff's department organized. Uh, so, you know, they were they were virtual, at, you know, at the time, and they asked us to be there, participate, answer questions from the community members. You know, like, you know, what should they be looking out for? You know, what uh, what are the risks and how they might be able to to um, you know, help minimize these negative impacts. And so participating in those sort of community outreach meetings certainly is stuff that we've done. Um, in the in the instance that Chase was talking about where we helped install some of the um, erosion control products, in that, in that one instance, we actually had um, some contacts at a, in a manufacturer, a representative with one manufacturer that um, matched, they donated materials that, mm. that kind of matched the, the funding that they got from FEMA. So the community got some um, some money from FEMA to help you know purchase and install uh, uh, the erosion control mitigation measures. And we were able to introduce that particular county to a manufacturer that, that donated um, an equal portion of the FEMA money. So, um, which was, you know, we thought that was great. Just that one introduction and uh, we were able to increase the amount of capacity the county had available to help mitigate these problems. So looking into the future, how do you think we can best prepare California for wildfire season? Um, looking forward, you know, we talked, you talked about how FEMA provided some funding, but the county had, you know, donations provided to really bolster their, um, their erosion control. What, what else can we be doing to prepare? Well, you know, one proactive tool that we've been um, trying to deploy, and there's a, you know, a couple communities that we're currently in contact with that are interested is, um, is creating um, a district that could be proactive, right? Manage the wildlands urban interface area a little more proactively um, and and try to prevent the fire from occurring uh, in the first place would be, you know, obviously ideal or, you know, minimizing its impact or its encroachment onto the, the urban uh, wildlands interface. So one one tool that exists in the state of California um, that we've applied to other geologic hazards like landslides and um, coastal erosion are things called geologic hazard abatement districts. And so they're uh, they're created by local agency, a city or a county, but once created, they become a state level agency. And really their charge is to help um, monitor and abate geologic hazards. And geologic hazards very broadly defined in the legislation that allows for for these districts to be formed, um, and certainly soil erosion is one of them, right? So uh, if you if you have an area with high erosion potential, like a post-fire environment, um, you know they're perfectly um, capable of going in and helping abate that hazard. But you know the first step to trying to 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 abate the hazard of a post-fire erosion is to not have a post-fire condition. Yeah, and, sure. Um, <laughs> and, and so, you know, we believe these districts would be well suited to come in and help communities, um, you know, in maybe that void that exists today between the fire department, which is, you know, there to put out fires. Um, but, you know, the, 
the prevention of the fire in the first place is oftentimes overlooked or underfunded. And these districts, if the community is interested, could maybe help fill that gap. Certainly. And, and prevention, you know, really is, is the key here. And it's something that nobody thinks about. It's always waited till the, the proverbial rainy day or hot day in this case. Uh, and, and certainly GADs, GADs have the ability as a prudent landowner, if, if they hold title of properties to actually go in and, and act as any prudent landowner would do. And certainly uh, if, if they're not the landowner, as we've discussed, you know, the, the tie in with the geologic hazard and preventing that geologic hazard becomes key because it's not only soil erosion. It could be, you know, re, the, the erosion takes place and now becomes kind of a weak point where water can seep in and you can start to have more regional uh, geologic issues, landsliding, debris flows, as you've pointed out, et cetera. Exactly. And, and we've learned that there is interest both at the California Insurance Commissioner's Office as well as the private insurance industry. Um, to, to have something a little more proactive than the current insurance environment around fires. Um, these wildfires have devastated, excuse me, devastated a lot of insurance companies. You know, they've had claims that, you know, have really outpaced their actuarial predictions. And so they're very interested in being involved and in, in helping advance a, maybe a, a more proactive, preventative, sustainable approach. We've uh, we've had a couple of bad fire seasons in a row. 2020 was, especially in the Bay Area, was was a terrible time. Uh, you know, you need not go back too far to find you know catastrophic fires all over Northern and Southern California. Has the phone been ringing more? Uh, has there been more interest at conferences or whatever from city officials, city managers? Uh, I have to think this is kind of top of mind right now for for many people. It, there is a lot more interest, and I think a, not just in the topic in general, but in you know, how we might adapt as a society to the, the changing times that we're in and, and try to create, you know, a different model to address the hazard. Um, and, and so there's a lot of people that are interested. They, they're, they, you know, want to be proactive, but a lot of people are still trying to figure out what that means. Um, and so that's kind of the conversations we've been having here of late. Fantastic. Well, wonderful. We really appreciated having you both on the show today, and we're excited to learn more about all the the ways that we can prevent the fire seasons that we're seeing here in California. But any any final words before we wrap up? Uh, maybe just that even the term fire season is starting to fall out of vogue. But every, every season all year is now a fire season. So, um, you know, I've heard that I've heard that said quite often. So um, fires are here to stay and they're going to be continual. Well, we we look forward to finding more solutions to the, the growing season that we see here in California. Awesome. Well, thank you so much both for your time. Thanks, everybody. All right. See you thank next you. time. Thank you.